0: on this episode of The James Quandtall Show.
1: Unless you have some kind of experience where things go wrong or you're all alone, you never get the two perspectives. You never get to appreciate things for what they are. You don't get to empathize with others. So now I can empathize with people that I help because I have been there. Although the suffering isn't the same, all kinds of suffering, whatever it may be, we have a lot in common.
0: Andres Braschel believes that deepening the understanding of your physiology The very science that makes you who you are is the best thing you can do to optimize your health, bolster your performance, look your best, and enjoy a longer and more fulfilling lifespan. He calls this physiological intuition, which he considers a human right. Andres' dedication to this field derives from a very personal place, as it was through his own health journey and love for the sciences that he stumbled upon the enhanced state of consciousness between mind, body, and spirit where healthy intentions meet actionable steps and lasting positive lifestyle change. Andres received a Bachelor's of Science in Exercise Physiology with a minor in Psychology from the University of Miami and is now pursuing an accelerated master's degree in Applied Physiology with a concentration in Nutrition for Health and Human Performance. As CEO of Know Your Physio and co-founder of Hombre E. Hermonas, Andres helps professionals and individuals from all over the world to develop a deeper understanding of their physiology so they can perform higher, achieve more, bio-optimize, and enjoy longer and more fulfilling lives. And just continue our conversation from your podcast last week, which I was really happy with how it turned out. And I, truthfully, I didn't really know what to expect of what we would end up talking about. And you sent me a list of things you wanted to talk about. And we basically avoided all those things and went down all these other new rabbit holes. And I loved it.
1: We discussed MMORPGs. We talked about fishing. We talked about positive reframing. Yeah,
0: and positive reframing was extremely helpful for me because I've sort of put some things in my past in just a box. And I just don't like to talk about them. And it's not that there was any trauma, but it's just oh man, I wasted those years and I can't get those back or I wasted that time and I can't get back those back. And I have a saying I I use a lot and it's like, there's no shoulda, couldas and wouldas in life. But really, you can turn that around completely and actually look back positively. So how did you discover that? Like, how did that happen?
1: You know, I think it came from a place of necessity almost because I would say, just like anybody else, you know, there's things about her about past. Maybe they're not regrets, but they're things that, maybe we're ashamed of, or moments where we felt insecure or alone or without the right skills to, or resources to overcome challenge or, you know, adversity. And I think that it came out of necessity in that I was in a, in a position, uh, you know, this brings me back to when I was in college and I was enduring like a pretty big identity crisis. And I was like, all right, who am I? Where do I want to go? Um, What am I going to do? Who am I going to be? And I felt that a lot of who I was at that point was just wasted time, you know, having played all these video games, um, taking medication for ADD that made me a loner for a very long time. It's, it's crazy thinking about this now. And it honestly makes me pretty emotional thinking about it. Just how I would come home from school and I would sit in my car for hours, like just hours on end, thinking, you know, who am I? Like, I w- I was struggling some of my classes. You know, I was taking some of these really really tough pre med classes that are designed to weed out, you know, separate the men from the boys, so to speak, and and all of that. Plus, I was, you know, breaking up with my girlfriend it was a long term relationship, and I was having uh, all kinds of personal issues, and so I was very vulnerable, and I was asking myself, right, who am I? Who do I want to be? And I would ask myself over and over again. For a long time, it was difficult to answer this question because I thought I had wasted that time. It wasn't until I had a really deep sense of curiosity, like I have to get to know myself. It was a really deep sense of curiosity where I started to ask certain questions and I started to see, okay, if I'm going to take this to the next level, if I'm going to level up, if I'm going to discover the next iteration of myself and be the best version that I can be, I need to dissect my past. And see what skills I can take from there. Because otherwise I'm always going to have this dilemma of, oh my God, I wasted so much time. And I, I just it, that couldn't be the case because if that was the case, I would have spent countless hours, more hours sitting in that car, asking myself who I was. And so I had to be okay with the time that I had spent doing things that otherwise seemed like they were a waste of time. So I, I asked myself, all right, what kind of skills and value, what did I actually learn? Is there anything that I learned in those experiences? And in fact, there was a lot. And let's, let's
0: get to that in a second, but I am curious, figuring out who you were and those, was there anyone you could talk to about that friends or family or teachers or anything?
1: I did have some friends. Um, I had some friends that are very close to me and they were dealing with their own dilemmas. You know, I think when you're that age and, 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 and that stage of your life, you know, in college, especially you, you, it's common to have some kind of identity crisis, right? You're, now you've left your home. You don't have the same support of it. I mean, you, your parents are, are there for you, but in a different way. And it's a whole new environment. So you, you constantly ask yourself these questions. And so I had, I had a couple of friends, but they were dealing with the same thing, you know? And so it was difficult for them to <laughs> step aside from their experience and their identities and go, hey, maybe this is what you should do because they were suffering it with themselves. So, you know, I think one thing is to bring me back to my roots of who I was. I asked my brother. Uh, my younger brother who, you know, he's I'm about a year and a half older than him. So we're pretty close in age and we've been best friends our whole lives. And so I, I would ask him and and he's hes a person who helped me return to my roots and return to what's important. And he helped me appreciate who I was in the sense that, you know, I, like I said, when I was in that position, I'd look back and, and and think to myself, man, I've wasted so much time, but he would tell me, no, but these things brought you so much joy, you know, although you were suffering with attention deficit, taking medication, and you were isolating yourself socially, and you were staying up late playing video games and, and fishing, like these things brought you so much joy that other people didn't get to experience. Like other people were under the peer pressure to go and go to their, go to parties and and go out to the mall and, and do all these things because everyone else is doing them. You had a chance to do what really brought you joy. And you had a chance to get comfortable doing those things and, and you did them really well. I mean, you know, I would say that of all the things that I'm good at, fishing is probably the best (laughs) That sounds kind of freaky to say like, you know, fishing, like how can you, how good can you get at fishing? But I, I would say that, um, I'm a pretty good fisherman and I'm really good at video games and those things brought me so much joy. And now looking back, I take so much pride in having spent my time doing those things. Um, you
0: know, there was a, there was a guest on my show once that said he loves to fish. He's just not a very good fisherman. I said, Oh really? Why not? He said, well, I'm really good at the fishing part. It's the catching part that I struggle with.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a big difference between fishing and catching. And I, I challenged myself with fishing. I, I took up fly fishing, saltwater fly fishing, and I would tie my own flies and I would seek out my own spots. And so you see that whole process, like if you're going to dissect it, like, I got really good with with all kinds of arts and crafts, like tying a fly specific to a fish in a specific place, specific time of the day, and casting it. and, and Stripping it, stripping is how you like reel in the line. Essentially, when you're fly when you're fly casting, that's how you manipulate the lure. Essentially, it's called stripping. Um, all these different things it, it taught me a lot. I learned a lot. I learned what it takes to to develop a skill uh, and 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 patience. You know, that's a big thing with fishing is patience. And I was saltwater fly fishing with my own flies, like that, that taught me patience big time and uh, video games. I mean, I, I told you on, on our episode, I was playing MMORPGs. So massive multiplayer online role-playing games. And those taught me how to, how to communicate with people of all backgrounds, all ages socioeconomic status is from all over the world. And I think that's one of the reasons how that's one of the ways that I can get away with such a high level of communication now through my online platforms with all kinds of people. I mean, people are engaged with my content. They ask me questions. I love, I love talking to them. You know, I'll, people think that I have this like limited accessibility and I, and I do, but I like to surprise people. Sometimes they ask me a question and I'm like, Hey, you know what? I can't answer this through the DMS right now. Here's a link to my calendar. Let's schedule a 30 minute meeting. And it's just like, I love engaging with people of all kinds of backgrounds, whether they can afford me or not, it doesn't matter. If they have good questions and they want to engage, let's do it.
0: So were you always competitive? Because it sounds like you're competitive internally, like you want to get better and better and better at this video game or better and better and better at fly fishing and learning all the nitty gritty details. Are
1: you, Would you say you're a competitive person? I'm competitive internally. I think that's, that's yeah, I, I've never been competitive with other people. Um, and and and, I'll tell you that saying that reminds me a lot of my dad. My dad isn't a competitive person with anyone but himself. And I'm a lot like my dad. You know, my dad's also a fisherman and such, and a uh, uh, very patient guy. And so I challenged myself internally, and I think that came out of, you know, I, I was with myself a lot, um, and so I had to challenge myself. yeah, and uh, I mean, today, the way that I manifest competition is, perhaps a little different but it's the same in that I challenge myself you know it's it's I'm competing with myself constantly so how does that
0: look for tendency to beat yourself up if you can't beat yourself or get better does that how do you feel about that I mean if you're competitive with yourself then you only have yourself to blame when you don't achieve your goal or get better so like how do
1: you how do you go through that that's a, that's a good question. Um, I, I'll tell you what, the, the, the truth is I can't be hard on myself sometimes, but I also have a lot of self-love that I've developed. And I think this self-love is what secures me from that criticism that otherwise would be very detrimental. Because I know a lot of people that are very competitive with themselves, but they really beat themselves up. And I think it just comes from a lack of self-love. And I think that through my health journey, I had to be my biggest fan because I was very much alone. Um, and um, I don't want to say alone because if I say that, it makes it makes my parents look bad and my friends look bad. My parents and friends were always there for me, but there was a lot of things that I couldn't put into words that I couldn't describe. A lot of challenges that were just so personal to me. And um, I had a chance to discover a lot of self-love and appreciation. And I know that if I'm going to be so hard on myself, I can't level up. It's in a hold me back. I need to give myself space to make mistakes and I think that I've gotten very very good at dissecting the failure, dissecting the mistakes and using them as lessons so I'm constantly feeding myself with this positive reinforcement to learn, be patient and take the challenges as they come and and as competitive as I is, as I am with myself, I I can't I can't be so hard on myself. I have this is something that I expressed online a while back is my formula for happiness is very high standards, but very, plus very low expectations. So I'm always working towards the best, the top, the, the, the highest standard of work that I can manage but I don't expect much. And that sounds almost like pessimistic, but I think it's more realistic than anything. You know, sometimes things are beyond your control. I really just try to focus on what I can control. And a lot of that is just my reaction and my emotions. And so I'm always working for the top, top, top. We're always working hard. But even if I fail, I'm like, all right, I failed. That's fine. What can I learn from this? How can I get better?
0: What are you working on right now? So what you're, are you going through that process now? I'm always going through that process.
1: Yeah, I'm a very ambitious person, and right now, one of my biggest challenges is really, really leveling up my my brand. Know your physio. You know, getting the community excited about it, getting people to start using the hashtag. You know, the more you know your physio. Um, but it's not even it's not even doing that. It's what it represents, really. Um, I want people to be more attached to the mission and than, than to me, because you know, as I was starting out with uh, content creation online and with a podcast and such, people look up to me. I want them to look up to the mission because this is so much bigger than me. And so I'm, I'm in the process of really stepping up uh, the mission and what it's, what it's accomplishing. So I'm building up the team, I'm building up the brand, I'm, I'm doing the logos and the graphic design.
0: What parts of that are giving you the most uh, complications?
1: Managing people is, can be difficult. In what way? So I've hired a couple of people for, for my brand, they're, they're other exercise physiologists and, and they're big fans of, of know your physio. So, so that's great They have, you know, they're very passionate about the mission and such, but sometimes it can be difficult. Um, delegating, like I would say I'm pretty good at delegating, but I don't like to, sometimes I feel like I'm forcing things on people and I like to be good with my communication and such, but Sometimes I get a little more excited about things than other people, like very specific things. Um, and I'm a perfectionist, which is tough because one thing I learned the hard way is no one's gonna love the mission more than you do. You know if you're the, the if, if if you are the CEO, if you're the founder, if you're the boss, um, you have to be the most excited about it. and other people for specific things within that mission, maybe they won't be. And so again, it's reminding myself sometimes to lower that expectation uh because it's not always super super low
0: and why do you want to kind of back away yourself out of the brand because i i think that people like a figure within a brand to follow or believe in and then that gets them paying attention to the information that that brand is creating but it usually starts with some type of a personal connection to a figurehead of some kind in the brand
1: absolutely i do want to be the face of the of the brand Ah, uh, the thing is what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to just focus on the things that only I can do, the things that I'm good at and only I can do, and outsourcing the rest because I'm just handling such a high level of responsibility right now that it needs to happen i don't I don't want to shift myself away from the brand. I just want more people to be involved so that the momentum can carry on without me having to be associated and responsible for every single step along that process. I just want to do what I can do for now and outsource some of the rest, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so I want to go back to self-love though, and how to cultivate self-love because I think that we could have a whole podcast on that alone. And that's something I need help with because the reason I asked you about your tendency to beat yourself up is I'm basically only competitive against myself and I have a tendency to beat myself up. So I want you to coach me on uh, cultivating
1: self-love. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something that the first thing for me is is sleep, because when I don't get good sleep, I feel like everyone everyone in the world hates me. Nobody hates, there's no way anybody hates you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like it when I don't get enough sleep, you know, you, you can be hard on yourself when, you're, when your body's under a certain level of stress. And I think that if you're not getting good sleep, it's automatically going to make you more stressed. You're not going to be able to manage your emotions uh, well. You're not going to be able to communicate well. It just makes it tougher to be yourself. So, so I would say the first thing is really investing in sleep and and um, understanding what the priorities are and what your values are and always being able to return to that as well. So, one thing I'll do is I don't do really uh, gratitude journaling. I don't. I have in the past. It doesn't really work for me so well. I what I do is when I meditate, I just think of man. It's it's so nice to enjoy this present moment, and this present moment wouldn't be if it wasn't for all the incredible people that I have around me, and the incredible family that I have, and and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for taking care of myself the way the way that I do. So whenever I have this sort of present moment, whenever I'm meditating in the morning, something I do every morning, just this feeling of euphoria that I experience, even momentarily, it reminds me of all the things that I'm grateful for that brought me there, and I think that's one way that I've been able to cultivate the self love and. And honestly, one thing is, people constantly remind me the impact that I've had on their lives, you know, on, online. And 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 it's it's sort of like when I need it most, when I need it to hear that most, people manage to let me know somehow that they appreciate me. Uh, because there are moments where things are difficult, and I always, always, always just try to stay true to myself and my values. I I try to consider myself, I consider myself a, a very selfless person, and. Some, somehow, some way or another, people always remind me that I'm doing something that is uh, really helping them and really helping them move along. And people really seem to appreciate me for it. And uh, that reminds me to stay true to myself and to love myself when I feel that I'm lacking it. Uh, it's just like a funny, weird manifestation thing that occurs. Yeah. I would say. yeah
0: you, it comes when you need it the most. That uh, gives you the boost to continue doing what you're doing. And uh, yeah. do you have your values written down, or how do you
1: define your personal values then? So, when it comes to my values, I always think about my parents. My parents have—they're the most honest people that I that I know, and I say that because um, they're medical professionals. My dad is a is an eye surgeon. My mom is a dentist. They're very smart, extremely hardworking, extremely honest people. They're my role models, and. Growing up, you know, we grew up in Venezuela. That was where my, where I spent my childhood. I was born in New York, um, spent a year living in Minnesota when my dad was doing his, his fellowship there when I was about one and a half moved to Venezuela and until I was six, I was there in, uh in Caracas, the, the capital. And from a very young age, I've had the chance to see my parents. You know, they come home from work after a long day of work and as exhausted as they may be, the first thing that we talk about in a dinner table it was like automatic they would just tell us this incredible story of how they got the chance to help their patient change someone's life it was like it, it just seemed so natural for them you know it was it didn't matter how hard they worked they were always so appreciative so so much in love with their process and what they were doing and ever since i was in venezuela from 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 as far back as i can remember that's what they were grateful for and so i always saw you know uh the scientific method and applying science to help others as the most rewarding thing anyone could ever do right the most rewarding career and that carried over when they came to Miami and the thing is what changed in Miami was the appreciation that people have for doctors and medical professions here is very different from what it is in Venezuela in Venezuela doctors and medical medical professionals have Just this this super high level of respect. Over here, it's very, very different. And there's a number of reasons why. I I honestly don't want to get into that now, but it's a conversation for another time. But um, even though there's a different level of appreciation for people here, my parents still love what they do. They're extremely honest. And I think that because they're so honest, they haven't had the chance to make as much money as some of their counterparts, you know, as, as, as other people in their profession, even though they're they're super good at what they do, they're super hardworking people. You see it just how much medical professionals can abuse the system here to make a little more money, to get a few more patients, to um, offer procedures that are much more expensive because patients will meet the minimum criteria and boom, now you have the most expensive elaborate procedure doctors are making. There, there, there's, 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 a, there's a lot of greed here and regardless my parents have stayed true to themselves and they love their process just as much and they're always honest and so whenever i think about myself and what's true to me and what my values are i think about my parents and now today i still get to apply the scientific method to help others but i do it in a different fashion so i'm still true to those values within a perspective that's more personal to me and my my health journey right i'm doing more of preventative lifestyle medicine my parents are more focused on you know the intervention, right? When things go wrong, what do you do? And they still it's funny because my perspective on health now is now that I've evolved as a scientist a little more, it's completely different from theirs. We still have a lot of the same values. but whenever I'm sick, whenever anyone is sick, whenever we have any kind of health problem, it's just oh take this medication, do this, do that. and it's like you know i'm I'm a little different. I understand right I, I like to I like to think that I know when it's appropriate to do one or the other, but they're always like automatic. They're in their doctor brains. Take this medication, go to this doctor, do this, do that. Um, but we know that we share the same values, which is really special. So
0: Yeah. And it sounds like you have created a blend of modern science and ancient wisdom and practices because a lot of times the health stuff that you and I talk about, it's not new. It's, you know, it's actually what we did before, and it's like just bringing it back and making it cool again because we realize that these, the modern science necessarily is more of an uh, uh, intervention when you have a problem, and it's not going to prevent the problem necessarily. Um, and you need both. You really, I think you do need both in, in the system, and you were talking about doctors, and um, you know, I think they do get a, a, a bad reputation in the United States, but they can only do what's given to them. And if we're not taking care of ourselves and we're presenting symptoms, they're going to try and 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 correct those. And so it's on us to take care of our individual health, and uh and 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 be as healthy as possible. So do you? They, as far as honesty goes, did they give you lessons of honesty, or did you just witness it over the years, or did they ever talk about it?
1: Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in that. Uh, showing is so much more powerful than telling. My parents never had to tell me to be honest; they just showed me. How rewarding it was to be honest through their work, and so that's what struck me the most. You know, they never said, "Oh, because I'm honest, um, I have a good connection with my patients, and I'm really making a difference." They just showed me how they would say they would they would <laughs> my parents' version of bragging is this this patient came to me from this doctor who was doing all these different things to them because they met the minimum criteria and they were spending all this money and told them, "Look, that's not what you need. You really just need this, and it turns out to be a way cheaper method. And it's just the correct method, right? My parents are not greedy people. They're so honest that it can work against them when you consider the relative amount of money that they're making, but they're not here to take anyone's money unless they need to, to change their lives. They're they're really being honest with people and providing the best standard of care. Um, So that to me, it just, it was everything. And um, I had the chance to observe all kinds of surgeries growing up. Ever since I was four, I've been in the, in the OR watching my dad do all kinds of procedures, cataract surgeries, LASIK, um, kind a chance to watch my mom. And then growing up, it was constantly in their offices, just seeing the kind of relationship they had with their patients. You know, it wasn't like they didn't treat their patients like numbers. It's like patients would come in, uh, they would treat them like family and, you know, my parents, they're Venezuelan. And so being here in Miami, it gives you an advantage because you can connect with people when you speak their, their native tongue, their native language, you make them feel at home. Um, a lot of American doctors here in Miami they can't do that. They 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 make commercials online where they go hablamos español, and they think they can get away with it, but it's uh, it's a bunch of BS, you know. And so I think um, coming from South America, uh, being here and engaging with these people in their native tongue is it's just a different level of care. It's a different standard of care. And that to me was everything. Yeah,
0: I, that's that's great. And we need many, 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 many more people like your parents. I know they probably can sleep great at night because they're taking good care of people in a way that makes them feel honest and 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 good. Um, yeah. But going back to the car and you're sitting there asking, who am I and why am I here? How did your parents' success in their fields weigh in on that? that and and them both being uh doctors and um you and you kind of now in the holistic world in a way but how did how did that play into that at all did it play into that
1: yeah so that's a that's a critical question and and this is the way that it worked it's they had a lot to do They, they were very much involved in that process from a values perspective but like i said we share a lot of the same values but we do things a little differently and that came from as I was asking myself all these questions, I was in the midst of switching majors. I was, you know, I was, I had this identity crisis, and what was going on really was, I knew that I wanted to be in healthcare. I knew that I wanted to apply science. I knew that I wanted to help people get healthier. But I had all the shadowing experience that I'd done for the past couple of years with some of the top doctors and surgeons in the U.S. I mean, I, I did. I uh, had a shadowing experience with a liver transplant specialist, with an interventional radiologist who is not my business partner, and I'll get to that in in, in a moment, but uh, with a bunch of really, really high-level specialists, and I noticed that they shared a similar frustration. And mind you, this was while I was enduring my own health journey, right? So while I was, I had taken Adderall and I was robbed of my health and now started to, to, to take matters into my own hands. But as I was enduring this and making that transition, I was shadowing these specialists and what they had in common, the frustration that they had in common was that even when they provided the most elaborate, expensive procedure, a liver transplant, imagine, or placing a stent in an artery, their patients would return after some time for the same procedure. Why? Because their lifestyle brought them back there to that disease state. That to me was a huge alarm. I was like, wow, I'm enduring this for myself. I can't imagine what it would be like to return to my disease state and to return to a state where I needed to take this. I I just, it was, it was so many alarms are going off. I knew that I had to attack this from a different perspective. And so all of this was happening. Um, I still appreciated my parents and looked up to them and I was inspired by them, but I wanted to do things in my own way. And another thing about my parents and another one of the values is my parents support my brother and I, no matter what we do, as long as it's not going to kill us. My parents were always fully supporting and backing my brother and I. So, so when I went in the direction of disease prevention and exercise physiology and psychology and nutrition, they were in full support. The values carried over, the perspective was different. It was more personal to me. And I think that because it was so personal to me, with ADD, I was able to completely focus. And now ADD was suddenly a superpower. And so all these things happen. And look, I'll tell you that in the background, there's a certain level of magic to this and manifestation that I can't explain. It all seemed to come together so seamlessly. Now looking back and, and, and observing this, right? Because in the moment, there was a lot of uh, confusion. There was a lot of questioning myself there was a lot of difficulty but i just tried i the, the, what really helped me get through it all was staying true to my values and and doing something that i knew would bring me a lot of joy internally and i continued to follow that path yeah
0: so you and, uh, you talked like you you mentioned the phrase robbed you of your health that adderall robbed you of your health what made that clear to you because there's there's folks that are electing to take that to I just think I I saw a stat this week about the percentage of students on uh, higher education campuses that are taking these uh, drugs and they're prescribed and I know it's very easy to get them prescribed. You just ask for them basically, Um, but they were using it as a growth hack potentially or a focus hack. Why did you feel
1: that it robbed you of your health? I feel that it robbed me of my health because it got to a point where the minimum effective dose was just so high and, and the tolerance was so high that, um, the side effects were just, they were very detrimental to my health. They were, I, I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't fall asleep. I couldn't socialize because I had developed a stutter, you know, classic, uh, uh, symptom of long-term amphetamine use. You will stutter, you become anxious, OCD, um, no sleep and i was surviving off of ensure shakes that's that's what they,
0: they give to, to babies to to get them up and weight
1: yeah so that's that's what i was surviving off i couldn't eat anything else my mom i i i remember my mom would pack me lunch for school like in elementary and middle school and i would just leave it in my bag i wouldn't eat it like i i would come home and it was like spoiled and we'd have to throw it out like i wouldn't eat any of uh, any of my food I was just drinking sure shakes when I could. I wasn't hungry or thirsty, none of that. Honestly, because I had taken this at such a young age, I just thought it was part of who I was and I thought it was, I thought it was normal. Um, in fact, when I first started taking the medication, I didn't even know what it was. My parents would just give it to me in the morning and they'd, take, they'd tell me, hey, these are your vitamins in the morning. You know, I didn't, I was too young to understand what it was. Why
0: were you, why were you being given it? And the, Was there a reason that you were getting, being prescribed it
1: in the beginning? Oh, I was totally attention deficit. You know, I, I, I hyperactive. I, I don't know, maybe, but I was. I couldn't. I wouldn't get anything done. I wouldn't focus. It was. It was impossible. I was like the not a class clown, but I would distract the entire class. I would be in soccer practice and I would just go look for grasshoppers on the field. Uh, I was completely, just completely distracted. Uh, but when it came to fishing, when it came to video games, oh my God, I excelled. So
0: things you liked. Um,
1: things I liked, I excelled at. And my parents always knew that. My parents always knew that about me. But it, just, it was a matter of finding something that was personal to me, that I could excel at, that would actually become a, a career. And I think that Adderall created that career because it isolated me. And I had problems that I had to deal with to the point where I knew I had to fix them. And I became obsessed with my health. And then I didn't need her at all because the disease state was the new passion, you know, and that's how the health transformation occurred. But it did rob me of my health. Of course, in my case, it was necessary for what I'm doing today, necessary part of that process, but it was just impossible to get nutrients in my body. It was impossible to get sleep and feel restored, Yeah, you know, and so I'd wake up in the morning and I just needed more of it to get going. It was terrible. Yeah. I didn't have the ability to socialize or to eat or to sleep. And those three things are the foundation of Anyone's health. Was there a moment
0: when it was like the last straw and you're like, I'm never taking this again? Or or was it just kind of slow?
1: Actually there was. And I'm and 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 and, uh yeah, the second you asked that question, I just got this this uh flashback and it was I was studying for an exam and it was like one of my last few I was I was transitioning off the medication, which was extremely difficult to do. Oh wow. So do you just Um, like
0: reverse doses slowly backwards?
1: I was I was slowly taking less and less. Mm But that that's when I noticed actually how addicted I was because the uh, the the dependency I mean the, the withdrawal symptoms were 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 really, really intense. Um, so I knew that I was dependent on it, but I didn't know how bad my body needed it until I spent more and more time without it. Um, but there was this one moment where, as I was transitioning off, and I would only take it maybe once a week at this point. I was still taking the maximum prescribed dose. I was just taking it less frequently. And it was like 60 milligrams of Adderall, which is for anyone that takes Adderall, that's a lot. Like most kids that take it from their friends in in college, which is very, very common. They'll take five, 10, maybe 20 milligrams. 60 is a lot. And so there was this one time where I was studying for an exam. I took Adderall and all of a sudden I feel like I was like, shaking or something. Like I felt, I felt like the room was moving around me. I couldn't tell if it was me or if it was the room. And I had this big, my, my, I was sitting on my bed studying for an exam. And in that room at the time there was like, I had my closet and there were these like glass mirror doors that, that, that were facing my bed. And so if I looked towards the closet, I could see my reflection on my bed. So I did that. I turned to look at myself and I realized that the Adderall was so intense, my heart rate was so high that I was literally throbbing back and forth. It was crazy. I didn't, I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know if it was in my eyes or if it was in my brain. I looked at the mirror, and I was literally moving up and down. And I was like, "This is, this is just."
0: Was that because you were, you were? It was a withdrawals, and then you, you got it, or was it just? Because of just the drug.
1: It must have been like I took a week off and then I reintroduced it. So I had some I had maybe I was a little more sensitive to it. But that's when I was like this, this, this just doesn't make sense. This, this is. Yeah, that was that was that was a really intense. That moment shook me. Yeah, it really did. So
0: what happened next after that moment? Was it just you, you, you basically stopped or did did you have to kind of wean off?
1: Yeah, I couldn't stop cold turkey. I had to wean off. Um, I would transit, I would switch off between, look, I'll tell you something that weaning off was my parents did help me with it, but it was more on me making the effort. And I didn't really take like a scientific approach. I mean, there's all these methods, right. For weaning off medication, there's so much science on that, but I wasn't really doing that. I mean, I was just trying to see what I could manage on my own. And so I would fluctuate between Adderall and Vyvanse. I had 70 Vyvanse Another. It's the maximum prescribed dose, or at least at the time I don't know what it is today, and eventually, I managed to get off of it um and then I had the summer between my junior and senior year to like really wean off and really get invested in my in my health and 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 building new habits and nutrition and sleep and stuff
0: That's a scary, scary thing sitting on your bed and not knowing if you're moving or the room's moving, and it ended up being that yeah. you were pulsating that. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I can't imagine it was, that. It was pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah. And so, how did those last two years of school go without it? I know that caffeine's a a a good uh, a thing for folks with ADD to get some semblance of focus, and it has its own addictive qualities and and other things. But how did you manage those two years without?
1: Yeah. So I stopped taking this. I I started weaning off towards the end of my sophomore year. Um, as most people know the toughest year of high school is junior year. That's when you're applying to, you know, uh, colleges and, and universities and such, and you're taking your SATs and your ACTs. So it was the toughest year. And my junior year, I must've taken it a couple of times, but um, it just, all of a sudden, I remember my mom, actually, she wrote something on a note and she put it against she put it on on the wall next to my desk for me to look at, and so that I could read it every single day. and And I think to her, I think she was hoping it would have some kind of impact. I don't think she realized the kind of impact that it had up until today, up until this point. And what she wrote was, "You are the captain of your ship. You are the master of your destiny." And she drew a little, a little boat, a little ship, and and she wrote, she drew a little like figure, a stick figure, and I guess that was me, right? And I saved that. And I didn't, I, like, I protected that little piece of paper and I, and I took it with me everywhere. Even once I left and went to college, I took it off that wall on my desk and I took it with me and it was everywhere. And I don't think I don't even, I honestly, like just sharing this with you, I'm going to go and tell her this weekend when I see her, I'm going to tell her that I saved that piece. I don't think she knows.
0: I'd like to see a picture that of huge it for me. And we
1: can, I have, we, I'll look for a picture of it. And, I'll send and it. if
0: you're okay, we can put it in the uh, show notes.
1: Yeah, ab- Absolutely
0: it was your security blanket right to get through that trial period and it doesn't matter if it's a piece of paper with a stick figure or a blanket or what it is but that it was the thing for you in that moment
1: yeah i'm so lucky to have the parents that i have and and that's something that you'll that's something that you'll take away from this podcast i mean my parents are really just two amazing amazing incredible human beings they're the best parents i could ever ask for and my mom was so involved in our college applications and in our exams and studying and and in our futures and both my parents were but my mom was more involved in like the in the school stuff and so she wrote that and I guess she hoped for the best but I don't think she understands the kind of impact that I had on my on my life today and so that was always in the back of my head like I need to focus on and it's on me I, that's when that's when it hit me like I I need to to really take responsibility and so it was a challenge that my junior year was for me, it was a, an opportunity to t- prove to myself what I could really handle and what I was really capable of. And it was extremely, extremely difficult, not not even my years in, in college taking pre-med classes compared to the difficulty of my junior year in high school. But I w- wanted to prove something to myself. And I think that's what pushed me. I wanted to prove to myself that I could do things without Adderall. And I told myself it, 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 I either can or I can't. It's either I'm going to take this medication for the rest of my life, or I'm gonna stop taking it and do what I can do and figure it out. And I, that's that was that was of all my life challenges so far, that has been my greatest challenge. It was taking it was it was weaning off the medication and doing this for myself by myself. Of course, I had the support of my parents, like I said, and, and my friends, my brother. But a lot of it was just it was very personal to me and I made it happen. I did extremely, extremely well in all of the standardized tests, you know, 98th, 99th percentile. And I took a bunch of AP classes that I did really, really well in fours and fives on all my exams. How did you do that? I'll tell you that it was, it just came from a place of more than anything, being afraid. I think my, my, my brother at one point, he, we, uh, we had this big mirror in our bathroom that we shared. And one time we were both, you know, we would get ready for school together in the morning. And so we would go in and out of the shower getting ready. And one time he looked at me and he said, oh my God, like, like you looked like you were in some kind of like death camp. Like he was, it, and, 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 and I hate to put it this way it, with these words, but that's what he said. That really struck me, you know, um, because I was extremely skinny, I was extremely skinny, and I and I looked malnourished, which is the truth. And he was maybe he was a little extreme with what he said. It, it was it was it was effective in that it really taught me just how much I needed to change. And my girlfriend at the time, her family even spoke out against my condition, my physical condition. They they communicated to me through her that I needed to to really step things up for my health, because I was, I, I got to, to a point where I was extremely malnourished and I needed to make changes. And so my brother, you know, someone that's always been very honest with me. Um, and I felt, I feel that if he hadn't said something so extreme, I wouldn't have taken him seriously. Yeah, that was, that was, that was a pretty scary moment, but that's where, uh, things got really serious for me and I knew I needed to change. And so I think that's, that motivated me. And then also when my mom had written on that piece of paper and, um, I just, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life taking that medication. And I knew that the only way out of it, the only way to really do something that I could, that I would enjoy to get to be successful, I had to challenge myself. And that was, that was the year with the ultimate challenge. And I said, I'm going to do this and I made it happen. Um, and then my senior year, I mean, once you get past the first semester of senior year, it's really just, you know, you can get senioritis as they call it, and you can relax, uh, definitely be a lot more laid back. And and that was important for me because that was an opportunity to socialize and to build skills for college. I should mention that the transition into my senior year that summer between junior year and senior year was when I had the chance to do a neuroscience program at the University of Miami. And I got to stay there on campus and I had access to the gym. I had unlimited access to the gym and dining hall. I could eat as much as I wanted, train as much as I wanted, and I wasn't taking medication. And so that's where I had the chance to see the kind of impact that good nutrition, good training, good sleep, and a good social life actually had on my health. And I think that was a huge leapfrog effort um, into my first semester senior year because now I was way healthier. I mean, over the summer, that summer, I had gained maybe 25 pounds of like straight muscle. And, um, and so that first semester, which was challenging, senior year, I got by. And then second semester, I got to further invest in training, nutrition, social life. And then I had that summer again before college. All of that just came together so nicely to really transform me and my health.
0: Yeah. let's So let's break that down. I did a survey recently of the listeners of the James Quondall show, and they we, we talked before about the seven buckets, so you're familiar with them, but the lowest score that they had was in physical health and fitness was a big part of that so i'd love to break down how you built up from this uh, malnourished teen where uh, your brother said you you know your brother's calling you out your girlfriend and their family's calling you out how to build a strong foundation of health and Uh, in a way that doesn't make it so you're, that's all you do, right? So you can still have friends and you can still have hobbies and family and work and all of that. So um, where would you start with that? You mentioned sleep already. So that's probably a good place to start. But from there, what's next?
1: Well, here's, here's something that I want to share with your, with your listeners that I think is, is fundamental to this process. It's that you have to consider that in my case, and what a lot of your listeners, what we may have in common, and, 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 it's it may take me a moment to make this point, but I want to take you through these steps. First of all, I was malnourished. I wasn't at a baseline. I wasn't neutral. I was below far below that baseline. I was not in my natural balance or in homeostasis. I was I was restricted of all these wonderful healthy things. I couldn't exercise because I didn't have the energy. I couldn't sleep because I was on amphetamines. I couldn't eat because I didn't have an appetite. So once I started to remove that, my body bounced back. It just completely exploded. And there's this thing with uh, with with healthy habits and with training and with nutrition, and it's that when you first start to introduce these things, that's when you're the most sensitive to these changes. That's when you see the the, the greatest. Or the highest rate of of, of positive adaptation. It's the, the the dose response curve, right? To healthy habits. It's like if they're new, if you're just starting to introduce them, you're gonna see a massive amount of progress in just a couple of months. Like when I mentioned to people that I was able to gain 25 pounds of muscle in in, in one summer, they they're like, What like what kind of steroids were you taking? And I didn't take anything. It's just because I introduced that and I was so sensitive to it that all of a sudden my body exploded. And no, you don't have to, have, you don't have to take Adderall or medication or, or be malnourished to see this kind of effect. You just have to begin uh, implementing some of these strategies. And believe me, then in just a couple of months, in those first few months, you'll see massive progress, massive, massive, massive progress. People are just too afraid to begin. People are too afraid to take those first steps. They don't believe in the process. But the amazing thing about implementing these new habits is when you first implement them, you're so sensitive. So just start and let that momentum carry itself out. You're going to see amazing results in just the first few months. What I stuck to was, I mean, compound movements. And today, knowing what I know about exercise physiology, that's always going to benefit you, right? Because you you create a, a, a much higher anabolic response. A lot of people, when they go to the gym, they start to hit their biceps and their triceps and their calves and focus on the compound movements. And for, and,
0: and compound movements for, for, for those of us that don't know what that means, what does that mean specifically?
1: Multi-joint, multi-muscle. So it's like, instead of doing a bicep curl, do a lap pull down. Maybe you don't get the same direct emphasis on the biceps, a smaller muscle, but because you're breaking down so much muscle overall, right? In your lats, rear delts, biceps, you know, all, overall you're creating more damage the anabolic response is so far pronounced that you may actually see better growth in the biceps versus just isolating them. Um, so I stuck to you know pull-ups, push-ups, um, and some body, some, some lower body work, like squats. Um, and that was pretty much all I did. Um, didn't really bother isolating anything. You know, when we when, when we started, my brother and I started to embark on the fitness journey together, uh, you know, just before that, 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 that junior year, or really my junior year, his sophomore year. And all we had access to was we had a pull-up bar in our bathroom and our bathroom door. And then we had, that was it. There was, that was really it. So whenever we walked in and out of the bathroom, we'd do pull-ups. I remember I'd get home from school and immediately first thing I did was I'd bust out as many pull-ups as possible. And then we did push-ups like every night. And that was everything. That was all we had access to and it was enough right to create that first little wave of momentum with those compound movements. Yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense. So knowing what you know, now you've, you've, you've gotten a lot of education and, and uh, you've coached people and you've had other success stories besides yourself. So is that the same prescription now start with body weight exercise and then go to compound lifts?
1: Yeah. So that's, that's a great question with most people that I work with. Honestly, um, they think people think that they have to have the most complex, personalized, most uh, specific, and 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 high level fitness program to, to to build muscle because they see all these bodybuilders online doing all of this. Uh, they use their fitness bands and they and they do like you know they 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 have reps in the chamber, so to you know they have all these different techniques and things that they say. But people get so caught up in those little details when. They just need to start first of all, and they need to build a good foundation. I think one of the biggest things that's just so often overlooked is is the neuromuscular component to training, right? So really programming these movements on the neuromuscular level. So like the the the, I had someone hire me recently. Uh, He this guy that lives nearby. He wanted to hire me for. For fitness training, which is something that I don't do often, any uh, nowadays I don't do a lot of in in person training. But this kid lives, you know, less than a mile away from me, and he wanted to do a more high end program. And so I said, you know what, I'll go and coach you. And he was like, you know what, I have a I have a pretty uh, decent understanding of weightlifting. I've been doing it for a couple of years, so I think I can handle like a pretty high level of fitness training. And I said, okay, sure. And what I noticed was, yeah, he could push a lot of weight around, but he had his neuromuscular engagement in his his form was completely off, completely off. He didn't know, he didn't have a good foundation for any of these movements and he was really just massively increasing his risk of injury. And so what we did was we started to master the basics, mastering the pushup, mastering the row, mastering the pullup. And now he's able to engage in these more complex movement patterns. But I think with most people, they need to master these basic movements. They need to master them. They needed to know exactly how it feels to do a perfect push-up, a perfect pull-up, a perfect squat, lunge, and all of these, the the big compound lifts, they have to have these mastered before they engage in any of the more specific. More and, and that's without moves. any weight. That's just your body. That's without any weight. You can just do it with your body. And that's how I began. I just, I, I mastered the push-up. I mastered the pull-up. And um, from then on, I started to do more of the complex specific stuff, uh, you know, like improving my, or preventing postural issues, improving my posture with, with all kinds of reciprocal inhibition and stretches and such. And people get so caught up in the fancy work because these Instagram videos will go viral. The the reels and such go viral or the YouTube videos go viral when someone does something fancy, but it's all about mastering the basics and it can take you years to master them, you know, but that's going to give you an incredible amount of muscle an incredible amount of strength and it's gonna keep you safe and prevent an injury.
0: I, I, I see those videos on Instagram too. And I, I go, man, that looks, that looks really hard to do sometimes too. It's like, I, if I went and tried to copy that, I probably would hurt myself actually.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's um, a lot of people will set, them, set themselves up for, for injury so early on when they have the opportunity to see a tremendous amount of growth. It takes away from that, that, that wonderful part of the process. As you're starting out, you have a high potential for growth and you're so uh, sensitive to these changes. But if you start to do the fancy work first and increase your risk of injury, you're eventually something's going to happen. Either you're going to get injured or you're going to see an imbalance in your muscles, right? Maybe one side will develop more than the other. You start to see compensation. Your posture uh, starts to worsen and it's, it's not worth it. Do do what's safe, do what's effective, do something simple, master that and then move on and then proceed and then look for very specific exercise programming, look for a coach, you know, that kind of thing. But just master the basics first. Yeah.
0: What about throughout the day? Like versus a, a, is there ways to program bouts of fitness throughout the day? Like, so if you're in, if you don't have a lot of time to dedicate to a, a gym workout, for instance,
1: Absolutely. There's a lot of really good studies now that show how breaking up the, your, your fitness session into several small sessions is just as effective. It can be just as effective. You can totally break it down. Um, I do it myself. People, people look at me today, they, they, they look at my physique and they go, dude, you're probably spending, what, two hours in the gym every day? And they're shocked when I tell them I spend 30 minutes, two to three times a week exercising And it's effective. I mean, obviously, you know, with time, one of the things you see is you start to master the neuromuscular component. And so nowadays with less sets and less reps, I can get better neuromuscular engagement and promote more damage in specific muscle fibers and in a wider range of muscle fibers than before. But with time, that's something that you develop naturally. And so people can definitely break it up. You know, I'll do push-ups when I have the chance, pull-ups when I have the chance, and then I'll do like 30 minutes of real exercise, couple times a week and it's enough. And you should, I don't think, I don't think you should spend an hour and a half in the gym ever.
0: Yeah. That's uh, hard to maintain when things aren't going well, when you need your habits more than ever.
1: I mean, if you think about it too, it's not, it's not just the time you're spending in the gym. It's the time you're spending to get ready for the gym, to go to the gym. Um, I get away with doing most of my workouts here in my tiny apartment in South beach. And all I have is a couple of kettlebells. I have a pull-up bar. That's really it. And, and a couple of fitness bands. I don't need a gym anymore. I just get fancy with some of my movements, movement patterns to the kettlebells, and I stick to the basics. And I'm constantly looking to get stronger, but breaking it up, I can manage that volume.
0: And you can still get stronger with those that type of equipment and not having a, a bar and a bunch of weights and a gym to go to?
1: Yeah, because people don't know this, but when it comes to power development, you know, there's there's two components to power. There's uh, there's mass and there's and there's velocity. So if you don't have the ability to increase the weight, just do the, do the movement more quickly and maybe do uh, spend more time in the eccentric portion of the, of the, of the workout. There's a really good study actually that I can share with people on effective and efficient training. I posted, it. Uh, I did a, a little summary on my Instagram page. It's a study by a couple of very, very famous exercise physiologists and fitness PHDs let me let me pull it up right here so it's the title of the study is no time to lift designing time efficient training programs for strength and hypertrophy a narrative review by Iverson et al and uh, Brad Schoenfield is uh, is one of the authors as well it's an incredible study published in June of 2021 and it takes you through how to lift super efficiently if you just don't have the time So for example, they describe supersets. They, they, they mention restricting warmups to exercise, exercise specific warmups, which is something that I do all the time, only prioritize stretching. If the goal of training is to increase flexibility. Um, And then there's a, there's a, and then they have like, for example, examples on the, uh, the effective uh, loads and reps and sets, but it's, it's a matter of understanding how to use your time. And of course that comes with a with an understanding of let's say, uh, uh, substrate utilization, right? If you have, for example, if you know that it takes a, a lot of power to perform a, 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 push workout, um, and that you need two to three minutes to replenish that creatine phosphate, you know, what are you, what can you do in that time frame? Well, why don't you use the opposing muscle group, right? Apply some reciprocal inhibition and just do the same, take the same approach for a, for a pool workout now for a pull exercise. And you can still replenish in those muscles, uh, uh, and, and give them both an opportunity to rest, right? So there's a lot that you can do and I don't want to dive too far into the science, but you can't take a very, uh, a very uh, scientific and efficient approach to your training. And it's something that I've done and of course, through my health journey, I knew that the science was something that I wanted to apply because I had an appreciation for it for for so long. Uh, yeah, it's totally applicable. It's totally doable, and I recommend it for anyone looking to uh, to save time on their on their strength training. Have
0: you seen that? Uh, I think it was in the New York Times. Possibly there was a seven minute body weight exercise and. It was like 30 seconds in each exercise with 10 seconds of rest. And it basically hit
1: like a Tabata set. It,
0: and it basically hit every uh, muscle group. And you could do one repetition of the of, of them or two or three. So in either 7, 14, or 21 minutes, you could get a, a pretty good body weight exercise. You could do it in hotels. You could do it at home. You could do it in the office. You could do it anywhere. Mm-hmm. And um, I I've, that, that's one of my go tos when I travel, just to, it just, it's just easy to do you don't need any equipment you can do it anywhere you can just use your iphone timer to to just watch the clock and you don't have to think about it um yeah that's what i really so want to learn to do is is more intuitive movement that isn't complicated just moving the body the way it was made to move and getting results from that way
1: so when you do something like that that's definitely more of like uh a- uh, a hit style, uh, session, right? It's, it's, it's short, but you have these very high intensity sets. The thing is, if you do those 21 minutes straight with only 10 seconds, 20, 30 seconds of rest in between, you're not going to see the same power development with time. Uh, you will see that's I, if you, if you were to average that out, it would look a lot more like a moderate intensity session because the best way to engage in like high intensity training is to give yourself sufficient time to recover between those sets. So you can replenish creatine phosphate, right. And from there develop your power and your, and your, and your, and your phosphagen system. But that's going to be definitely more of a cardiovascular workout than it is like a strength and hypertrophy workout for certain muscle groups. So like my priority with training now is I'm not, I, I should have mentioned this previously, but my approach to training now is I like to keep it efficient and i'm more than anything focusing on maintaining my muscle and developing my uh my cardiovascular strength like i'm not so focused on building muscle right now and and hypertrophy and, and and the bodybuilding like i used to be i'm just focusing on maintaining that muscle fiber and developing the cardio
0: so if someone wants to build the muscle is there like a building phase and then a a maintenance phase like you're in now like do you have to work out differently in the building
1: phase so you have to really make sure that you're getting sufficient volume right so that's a matter of sets times reps times weight and you want to maintain a good amount of volume and then slowly increase it over time that's how you're going to build muscle that's that's the in in one sentence that's that's hypertrophy and building muscle um yeah you know you can say you want to stick to eight to 12 reps, you want two to three minutes to rest between each set. And that's going to be the ideal, right? And weekly 10 sets per muscle group, you know, those are the, those are the standard. That's a standard for building muscle. When I was early on in my fitness journey, that was my priority, right? I just wanted to get as much volume as possible. I was in a, in a huge caloric surplus and, and that was great. But today maintaining my muscles pretty easy because I have my lifestyle pretty much figured out and in a good balance. Yeah. Like it's, it's a moving target on a daily basis, but because my sleep is so good because my stress levels are low and because I get sunlight and all these awesome nutrients in my diet, I can get away with way less training and it's effective. Um, I I'm, I'm able to maintain all my muscle and, um, still develop a lot of the cardiovascular, which is what I'm looking for today. But early on, if you're trying to build muscle, I would stick to uh more of a hypertrophy approach that I just described if you're trying to maintain muscle what you described a full body you know uh seven minutes for a few rounds perhaps that's 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 that that will suffice hmm.
0: it just seems uh, maybe it's the Instagram videos that it makes fitness and 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 muscle building and maintenance sound so complicated, but you make it sound so easy. Do our bodies want to be strong?
1: Like, is that why it's simple? It's a challenge. So, so here's the deal with, with any lifestyle intervention, and I really want to emphasize this. Almost every lifestyle change that we make, it's what you consider a hormetic stressor. Like In biology, a hormetic stressor is any substance or, or, uh, or stimulus that in small doses will promote a beneficial adaptation, but in large doses is known to be toxic. So for example, with fitness and exercise, when you exercise, you, you create damage in muscle fiber and you stress your central nervous system, and you essentially want to build the ideal environment from which you can improve. But if you do too much of it, it will be detrimental. And that's how overtraining occurs. And that's why a lot of people who are overtraining use the classic symptoms are, you know, an elevated resting heart rate, you're anxious, you're having trouble sleeping. Um, so when you have the, the rest of the, the, the surrounding lifestyle figured out, you're able to better engage in fitness and, and, and derive these awesome benefits from it. You have to understand that beyond fitness, other things can be stressors too, because your body, you may have good intentions, but your body doesn't know your intentions like you do. And if you want your intentions and your biology to coexist in harmony, you have to take an approach that is sustainable, that is slow and progressive, and you can't overdo it in any one of these buckets. If you make significant change to your nutrition and you expect awesome results, it's going to stress you because your body wants to revert back to what it knows best. And homeostasis is something that develops over the course of several months, several years. And even if you have a lifestyle that brought you to a disease state, because it's what your body knows best, that's what it's most comfortable with. And so if you want to make these changes. You can't make too much change too quickly or else your body will fight to revert back to what it knows best. Everything has to be done slowly, gradually to see change. And if you have the support of lifestyle overall, your training will see you will see some significant improvements in your training in a short period of time. Yeah.
0: That's encouraging, right? You, you, because you don't have to go walk 10 miles today, if you're if you're not walking at all, you could just go take a 15 minute stroll in the morning or 15 minute stroll after lunch and start there and do that every day for a while. And then you're probably going to get to a point where you want to walk further or you're going to want to walk more often or you're going to want to start taking phone calls while you're walking or you want to meet your friends and take a walk. And before long, you're going to want to do other things outside like play frisbee or uh play tennis or you want to get a dog so you have an excuse to be outside even more right does it it just seems like the stuff builds naturally on top of itself
1: and and another thing is is the endorphin response that you get for these for these kinds of activities right over time your your body starts to see you start to see this uh this awesome endorphin response to, to fitness right if you're not doing any fitness at all and all of a sudden you start engaging in it the first couple of weeks will be difficult. It will take some, some level of adjustment. Um, but all of a sudden you're going to see an awesome endorphin response. You're going to feel this euphoria after, after, or even during your fitness session, you're going to feel energized. You're going to feel good. You're going to feel happy. And that's something that's always going to call you back to that activity, but it takes, it takes a couple of weeks of adjustment and something that I, if you want to take this back to like, you know, the, uh, my experience with ADD and, and, and making these lifestyle changes in the very beginning, there was someone that told me way back that if you want to make these changes happen, you have to start with steps that are so small that they're impossible, that it's impossible, uh, not to fail. Uh, um, I mean, it's it's impossible impossible to fail. fail. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so making changes that are so small that it's impossible to fail. So, Instead of telling yourself, I'm going to go to the gym and I'm going to, I'm going to do all these push-ups and these pull-ups and, and master my, my fitness in a couple of weeks and, and build all this muscle, start with something so small it's impossible to fail. Do one push-up, do two push-ups, do three push-ups. All of a sudden, you're going to get on the ground, you're going to do 10, 20 push-ups. It's, it's, it's just starting so, so, so small because the hardest part of any of these changes is starting. And that's where you start to see that momentum building up. And that's where you really get to take advantage of the dose response curve to exercise. Being a beginner, you can see so much growth in such a short period of time. So just start, make it impossible not to start.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. That's encouraging. And, uh, it, it gets, it makes me want to go, uh, do some, uh, squats right now. (laughs) So that's, (laughs) that's great. And, uh, and so if you're driving and listening to this, don't, uh, Maybe take a break and do that later. Don't do it now while you're driving. But um, I do want to talk to you about this. Is I didn't uh, prepare you for this, but just uh, uh, following you on Instagram for a while, and uh, I just have a, a a sense that you have a good friend sh- friend community. And on that survey I talked about at the beginning, physical health was actually the second lowest. I remember now the lowest score was friendships. So I'm curious what you think about friendship or how to make friends or keep friends or, or any thoughts you might have on, uh, on, on being a good friend or what you gain from friendships.
1: I'll tell you my number one. I love this question, first of all. I'll tell you my number one recommendation for friends and for friendship. I would, I'm would. always going to pick four quarters over 100 pennies. That's something that someone shared with me a while back. They said it very casually in conversation. They were mentioning how their little brother—it was one of my friends. His little brother has all these friends, right? But he told me he's like, "Yeah, he has all these friends, but I'd rather take four quarters and a hundred pennies." Because he was dealing with uh, some friendship issues at the time. But he knew that he had a couple of good friends to to back him up. And so, when when he said when he shared that with me, I was like, "Wow, you know, I've always thought of myself as someone who." I was never super popular. I never had all these crazy friends that would invite me to parties. And I had a couple of really good friends. And that one liner right there helped me appreciate the friends that I had because I knew that they were always going to be better friends than the hundreds of non-significant non-signific friends that I, that I could have right there. It's, it's so much better to have four people that you can really count on that really give you so much value versus 100 people that you don't really know so well, that may or may not be there for you. And so one of my best friends growing up always will be my little brother. Um, my parents have always been really good friends. And then I've had um, a lot of friends in school. Uh, well, not a lot of friends, but a couple of good friends at school that were always there for me. And so I've never been someone that has always friends, but I have I've always had friends that I can count on. So are
0: you protective on bringing new friend, like what you would classify as a friend into your fold? Or or do you have different levels? Like, oh, this person's an acquaintance. I'm, they're not yet a friend
1: or I, I don't have, I'm not
0: accepting any new friends right now.
1: One thing that I've learned with life is a lot of friends will come and go. They're fun, some friends that will always be there. You just know, you know, sometimes I'll go out and I'll just do whatever and I meet someone and, and you just make a connection with them or you know that they can be there they can be there's someone that you can count on, you can rely on, and it just feels right. Friends will still come and go, but I know that there's friends of mine that I haven't talked to in years that I can call up for anything and they'll be there for me. You
0: know, I did have a guest on on the show once, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lapin, and he said the way that he gauges if someone's a friend is if he can call them and he doesn't owe them money. And they call him back within 24 hours and he doesn't tell him why he's calling.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I might, my you know, now- a thousand
0: Facebook friends might get to a very, very small number if that was our qualifier for
1: that, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have all these followers on Instagram. I have a bunch of friends on Facebook. I have hundreds, if not thousands of phone numbers on my phone. But I have like, uh, you know, on the iPhone, you have like a little list of favorites you can add people to. I have like a couple people there and I can call them whenever and I can count on them you know i have people that engage with me all the time online but i know that if i had a serious problem or a serious circumstance and i really needed their advice i don't know if i could really count on them but i'll tell you what i appreciate everyone and i and i'm open to being friends with anyone and everyone so that's something is i never i never have my guard up for friendship i always let people introduce themselves and i'm i'm a like I'm a big believer in that first impressions are important, but I'll tell you that some of my best friends today we made when we first met we had a it was terrible or embarrassing or they said something that they probably weren't supposed to say and you know like I give people second chances the right people they'll find a way to make themselves part of your life and and they'll they'll find a way you know Um, and I'm a big believer in giving people several chances. So So, as far as being a good friend
0: yourself, uh, I see you as an intentional and deliberate person and so giving people second chances is one way to be a good friend and if we go with Daniel lapins uh, you call them back when they call you is another what would be some other uh, qualifiers for you as far as you being a good friend what I what made me ask this question is I see your pictures of your uh, Grilling out and 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 opening up fish together and having 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 fantastic meals. So that to me, I see that and go, wow! Like he's got a little social network of people that are eating with him and breaking bread and.
1: So I'll tell you what I'll tell you now that you mentioned that because I you know for me it's like this is just how my friendships are and it's difficult to bring awareness to these things when they just seem so natural, right? Like you see it from you you seeing this and observing this from an outsider perspective, you get to see the kind of experiences I share with my friends and to be. To be fair, a lot of my best friends—they're really into making meals together, sharing meals together. Uh, I think it's so special to be able to enjoy a meal with someone and to put that meal together with them. And I'll tell you now, thinking about this, and thank you for mentioning this. My best friends are people that I can sit down and have a good meal with. Probably one of the biggest things—people that I can just sit down. We can enjoy a healthy meal. Maybe we went and, and to the ocean and 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 caught it together, right? It could be a lobster. One of my dearest friends, a guy named Kabir Parker that I actually had on the podcast a while back. He's a dedicated spear fisherman. He's a marine biologist. I met him at the university of Miami. That is someone that I can go out and hunt my meal with and take a sustainable approach. Right. When we go and harvest our food, he knows exactly what species and what size need to be and, and what time of year is the best to harvest them in order to be as sustainable as possible. And then we can sit down together and enjoy this wonderful, healthy meal that we put together, caught together. Share with everyone else in that table. This is this is what the process was like to harvest this food, and this is what brought it here, and this is what it means, and this is this is why it's so meaningful and why 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 it means so much to us. And so that's really special. We've had a, a number of awesome meals together. Uh, my girlfriend and I—I I mean, she's one of my best friends. I mean, my girlfriend is uh, before my girlfriend before being my girlfriend. She's my best friend, and so we make a lot of awesome meals together. I mean, you can call it a date night, but to us, it's just how we. How we get together and 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 enjoy each other's presence is over a lovely meal that we know is going to nourish us and make us better versions of ourselves. You know, I see nutrition as is such a powerful component of my lifestyle because I see the way that different ingredients and different things and eating at different times of day influences who I am and and my health overall. And so being able to get together with my friends and enjoying a meal with them, that to me is like the most special thing. And then I have friends that will they get really good at preparing a certain ingredient or a certain food and then they bring their their approach to the table and it's just it's just so special
0: what's your favorite food i had to take this uh this survey this week and it was really hard for me to answer that but you know i put down lamb shank i don't know why that's what i put down i'm like i don't know how many people have ever answered a favorite food question with lamb shank but i'm going for it
1: <laughs> i love lamb shank i love lamb i love i love all kinds of food i think my favorite uh cuisine is, is Mediterranean. I actually do have some uh, Lebanese blood and such. And so I think that comes from uh, from that place. You know, I love eating dates and grape leaves and tabouleh and, and hummus and, and, all, and all that. You know, the, the pronunciation in, 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 in American English is a little weird, but uh, for the people tuning in, you know, maybe they'll be able to pick up on it because otherwise it's like hummus and tabouleh and babaganoush, you know, all that. But I, I I love that stuff, and it's and it's known to be just so happens to be some of the healthiest food uh, in the world, right? The Mediterranean diet. But um, I don't know if I have a favorite kind of food. I love seafood. I don't know. Maybe if you can consider like whole healthy food, the type of food. I don't really have a favorite cuisine. Really.
0: I think it's really fun to do. Like I did the twenty three andMe uh, ancestry heritage and found out. I mean, I knew. Where my family said we were from, but then saw the genetics of where I was from. And then my wife and I went to the library and we picked up cookbooks from those different places and then just started trying some of the stuff. And one of the things in the Norwegian cookbook, which you may think this is a no brainer being a lover of eating fish, was a butter and uh, Dijon mustard sauce that you would put on the fish. And we've been putting that on salmon and herring and all sorts of fish, and it is unbelievable how good it is. It just it's so good. And it's so simple. Just go find out what your what your ancestors ate and, and eat that. And it's probably good for you. And it's probably foods that was local to them. And it's it's probably But let me ask you something. Yeah.
1: What percentage of your DNA was Norwegian? Over fifty percent. Okay. Well, I in my case, I have like like twenty percent of like five different things, and so I don't really know what approach to take uh, from an ancestry ancestry perspective to my nutrition, other than just mixing it up and and getting all kinds of food. yeah.
0: I, and of and what we've done is um is try to inherit some of the rituals from those places. So you may have five different places, and so you have the Lebanese heritage. So look at an interesting holiday that they that they follow there in Beirut or something and then find a way to include that. And it might be a certain like type of food that they eat or music that they play or garments that they wear and bring that into your life in some capacity. And uh, I think that that's a great way to honor our ancestry and and make it alive. Actually, this year we, um, in, in the Scandinavia, they celebrate John the Baptist's birthday and it's actually the, on the longest day of the year. So they have these bonfires and they have these, uh big picnics with a ton of food and they play games outside and they do all this stuff so this year we tried to recreate our own version of that here and so just it's just really fun to do food is you can make food so much fun and that's that's why i love it and it's the same with me with my friends it's just cooking good meals together and it's not always necessarily the most healthy all the time but just being together with people you love and eating good food and breaking bread it's, it's great. And I think you said before, it's the Mediterranean lifestyle, not the Mediterranean diet. And the part, the reason they're able to drink and smoke and do and this other stuff is because of the lifestyle. It's not it's not they don't do they, You know, they, they break bread together and they they do all of this intermingled in there. Another thing about breaking bread with friends that I love, and even if it's not necessarily the best food in the world, because a lot of times if I go to like you can't always have someone just come to your house and you do all the cooking like that just isn't fair. And so you have to go to other people's houses and you have to eat food that they're preparing and just like kind of suck it up. And as my friend, Dr. John Deloney says, eat the pizza, which I've gotten really good at. Um, You don't want to eat a pizza every night, but you do need to do it occasionally. But what I love about those nights is how good I sleep, even if I ate food that would normally make me feel like garbage
1: the next day. One thing that I've been really interested in is the influence that our perception and our thoughts that are tied to a certain food, let's say it's something not so healthy like pizza, just the very thought of eating pizza stresses us out to the point where it takes away from the digestive process to break it down and absorb the nutrients in that pizza and feel good. And if we're with friends enjoying ourselves, we're in a much more parasympathetic state where the the digestion is 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 so much better. We can sleep better. We don't have that big, bulging stomach and indigestion and acidity and bloating that we typically would get because we weren't thinking about how bad the pizza was. We were thinking about how nice it was that we were enjoying it with our friends.
0: I'll take four times to eat when I'm with other people because I'm talking versus when I eat, when it's just my wife and I, and I just kind of scarf it down sometimes. But what else have you noticed with with friendships and and spending time time with friends that that helps these buckets of health that we were talking about?
1: I always ask myself when I meet someone interesting, I always ask myself, is this someone that I can picture getting dinner with or making dinner with? It's something that always comes to mind, because the best experiences that I have with my friends today, it's always over some good food, maybe some good wine, sharing stories, getting to know each other. um, You know, peeling back the layers of who we are and what the friendship is all about. And, and so I asked myself, is this, this person is cool, but could I have, could I enjoy a nice dinner with them? Or if it's a couple sometimes, could I have a nice double date with them? Because my girlfriend and I are so intertwined now. We're just so, you know, we have this awesome, beautiful relationship and friendship. So I asked myself that question too. And and, and we do a lot of cooking together. And so I asked myself, is this someone that I could, that me and my girlfriend could make a lovely dinner for, or maybe we could, uh both be involved in in and sharing a dinner elsewhere going to a restaurant can we go to, can we enjoy these people's presence over food that to me is the ultimate question and so it's that and then it's engaging in in just being being able to be myself so engaging in some kind of activity that i enjoy can I go spearfishing with this person what i what i do what i what i train with this person what i what i go on a hike or 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 on a trip with this person it's that's what it comes down to i i really believe in being myself and doing what I enjoy. And if I can bring someone along to do that with me, I think that's you know characteristic of a, of a good friend because I like to do these things on my own for the most part. But if it's someone that really stands out to me and that really shares a lot of these values and we can engage in something together and from there build our friendship, that to me is like... But but I'll tell you what, that that friend that I mentioned, Kabir, we actually found out recently and think about how crazy this is. We found out recently that in our younger years, we, we were both super into this one super specific video game. And, and when we realized that we both like freaked out, but then it just made so much sense. The game was uh, pirates of the Caribbean online. So it's based off of the movie, you know, the, the Disney movie, and we would play that all of like middle school. And that was, that was a great game. And so we were spearfishing one day and we were like on the boat between spots talking about video games or something. And one of us mentioned the game, and we both started freaking out. And we're like, "This just makes perfect sense." Yeah, I mean, that's that's a lot of a lot of my friends are are, are fishermen. Uh, they used to be, you know, into video games. A lot of them are just health nuts like me, you know, biohackers and scientists. You know, what's funny is my best friend growing up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have him on the podcast soon. My lifetime best friend. His name is Brandon he was never really the healthiest person growing up. And, and, you know, we're, we're so close to the point where I can say this and he's cool with it on the podcast. Like he's, he like eats top pocket. That's what I grew up on too. So I can't judge. Yeah. And I didn't grow up eating the healthy, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I grew up drinking in sure shakes, you know, and, and, and such. So, so I can make fun of him now, but we actually went in like our careers today are polar opposites. He's, he's, He studied chemical engineering at the University of Florida. Very, very smart kid. Super, super smart. And today he's supply chain manager for a company that makes Lay's chips, (laughs) like potato chips. (laughs) We're polar opposites. He doesn't exercise. He doesn't eat the healthiest foods. He, you know, he's he's considering now working the night shift and so sleeping all day long. So it's like we're just complete polar opposites, but we have a history that we share that makes everything special and brings us together. And although he doesn't cook foods, so we'll go out to a nice restaurant and get some nice food, you know, with our girlfriends. And it's just as special.
0: And there's a chance, Andres, in ten years, he might be leaning on you to help help him with his health. And it for you, it was that moment on the bed when you were pulsating and looking in the mirror. And for him it might be something else. And I think unfortunately, from my experience, trying to help A lot of people who weren't necessarily asking for help with health, it takes some type of a come to Jesus moment, some type of a moment that they just can't turn away from, that makes people to start paying attention to health. And
1: I I agree. Because
0: you would beat your head against the wall if you try to help your friends and family become healthier. And it's better just to be a positive example and not make them feel guilty and be there when they're ready to ask you for help.
1: That's why I'm a big believer in showing rather than telling always. And you can only bring a horse to water. So as they say, so it's the truth. It's the truth. And it's it's, sometimes it's an unfortunate truth, but even for my personal journey, I had to take that super low moment, ask myself who I was, who I was going to be, being extremely malnourished and underweight to become who I am today that I take so much pride in and brings me so much joy and allows me to connect to so many incredible people such as yourself. And to get to tell these stories, um, I hope that it gives people a unique perspective where they understand that they're not alone and that it it can take this kind of uh, low to level up and experience the next iteration of yourself. But unless you have some kind of experience where things go wrong or you're all alone and unhealthy, you never get the two perspectives, you never get to appreciate things for what they are and you don't get to empathize with others. So now I can empathize with people that I help because I have been there, although the suffering isn't the same, all kinds of suffering, whatever it may be, we have a lot in common. It's going to be tough for all of us, but in a in a, in a unique way.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a blessing that you're out there and you're available and you're willing to help people with this. and. Um, I think that we were we were made to be healthy, and our body wants to be healthy. We just have to give it the right inputs to get it there, and at the right time. And you're out there demystifying and making it sound so simple. So just keep up with what you're doing. I love it. I'll be I'll be continuing to support you and the Know Your Physio uh, brand that you're building. And I would like to end with you kind of saying where we can find you and what you're working on and and um, where we can learn more about you and and what, what the listener can do to help out.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, James. It's been a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to uh, a lot more incredible substance with you and, and engaging with you and, and building up this friendship.
0: Yeah, I want you to teach me to, to catch some of these redfish here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. I'd love to. And so where people can find me, they can find me on Instagram at Andres Prichel. That's A-N-D-R-E-S-P-R-E-S-C-H-E-L. They can go to my website, which is myname.com. It's AndresPrichel.com, A-N-D-R-E-S-P-R-E-S-C-H-E-L.com. They can email me at Andres at knowyourphysio.com. And uh, the podcast is Know Your Physio, K N O W y-o-u-r and then physio is p-h-y-s-i-o know your physio like know your physiology
0: yeah this was such a, f- a fun conversation and i'll make sure to put a link to your social media your website your podcast and everything else in the show notes for this episode which i'll put at quandal.com slash andres and that's quandal.com slash a-n-d-r-e-s And I'll put anything else that we talked about in there as well, uh, including that uh, that that recent uh, scientific study from this summer of how to get done more with less time. And um, I think we all have a lot of things we're trying to work on. And so that that's very helpful. So
1: awesome, James! Thank you so much. This is a really really fun show.